Hello there, I'm Neil Sharp, your host for this podcast and a partner of Pen Partnership. Today we're going to dive back into the world of life sciences and have another look at how the rise of the customer and other seismic forces are reshaping the sector. With vaccination rates and controversy over contracts and vaccine supplies rarely out of the news at the moment, pharma is once again right under the spotlight like never before. And for an industry that's obsessed with life and with improving patient outcomes in every disease area known to man, pharma suffers terribly from poor reputation. A lot of that is based on historical behaviours, but maybe now is the time when public perception could be shifted by the way in which pharma companies can actually help us get through the pandemic and maybe portray to the public the great work that it does. And within many pharma companies, one of the three main functional pillars is what is known as medical affairs. And my objective today is to explore the role of medical affairs and how that can come together with other parts of pharma businesses to create great customer outcomes. So my guest today is Danny Duplessis, who is Executive Vice President for Medical Affairs at Japanese pharmaceutical company Kayo Akirin. After completing his medical degree, Danny spent a number of years in primary healthcare in South Africa before joining the pharmaceutical industry more than 28 years ago. He's done a number of different roles in multinational pharmaceutical companies and has got a very successful track record in people development, leadership and also managing change. He now finds himself at Kaiowa Kirin looking after medical affairs, which is a Japanese specialty company focusing on rare diseases, amongst other things. I first met Danny in his position as director and board member of the Medical Affairs Professional Society. And one of the things that struck me straight away was the extent to which he shares the belief that we have at Penn that becoming a more customer-centric type of organization is key to the future of life sciences, both at a company level, but also at an industry level. So let's dive in and find out what medical affairs is all about. Let's welcome Danny. Oh, morning, Danny. And as I said in the introduction, uh, you're currently Executive Vice President Medical Affairs at Kaiowa Kirin. And previously, I know that you've held senior positions in other international pharma companies and also one of the leading trade organizations. So perhaps you could start off by perhaps telling us your story in your own words. Good morning, Neil, and uh, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, so, you know, I think my, my career has been uh, interesting from the perspective of having had the opportunity to do many different things. None of them actually particularly planned, if I'm honest, maybe the starting point. So, as you know, I'm uh, born and bred South African, uh, went to medical school, did primary care practice for probably about three and a half years in, in different settings, and then wanted to, to do something else and, and ended up in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, not knowing anything about it, if I'm really honest. Uh, but but it attracted me because I thought it was a, a, an interesting combination of of science and business and an opportunity to to make a difference maybe to more people than uh, just in a, in a GP practice uh, than I was in. So so I joined industry in the early 90s. So uh, just over 28 years experience. And within the industry, uh, as I've said, I've been really fortunate to do a number of, of different things, most of it in medical affairs, and we can maybe talk about that a little bit more later on. But I've also had an opportunity in, in marketing and sales. I worked in South Africa, Sub-Sahara Africa, came to the UK 2001, had an opportunity to work in 
in pharmacovigilance or, or product safety as it's uh, known. Also in clinical operations, which is more on the clinical trial side, and then had an opportunity to go to Australia. Worked there for about three years and then moved into multi-country roles and, and I suppose more management roles. So came back to the UK in 2010. I've worked for, this is only my third company, but uh, I've had lots of fun, uh, I have to say, and worked through many change projects, uh, I suppose, building teams, and I'm, I'm passionate about people and people development as well, well-being of both employees and, and patients. So I suppose that's me in a nutshell. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So a uh, really broad range of experience, as you say, only three companies, but done a lot within each of those companies. And um, I think we can certainly dig into that as we, we get through and, uh, and talk about some of your specific experiences and observations as we go along. I mean, you mentioned medical affairs there. Obviously, that's the world that you're in at the moment. And um, I wonder whether um, for those that are not perhaps quite so familiar with the industry, can you briefly explain what medical affairs actually means within the world of pharma? Yeah, happy to do that. So it's changed a lot over 28 years, I have to say. So so the current thinking is as follows. There's three strategic pillars, I believe, in any pharmaceutical company. So the first one is around research and development, you know, discovering new products and the, the early development of those. On the other end of the spectrum, there's commercial and, and access to, to medicines. And then medical affairs being the third pillar is sort of, if you want, almost the bridge between the two. Now, having said that, I think it's really important for people to understand these are not three silos, right? Everybody is involved actually in the whole continuum, but with with differing input, I suppose, right? So commercial input early on is obviously much less than later on, but it is important right from the very beginning of, of development to understand, you know, is this also a commercially viable product which actually satisfies an unmet medical need because let's not forget pharma is is a, a commercial enterprise and if we are not able to actually show good revenue and profit then there's nothing to fund the early pipeline and you know in time we we just will stop to to exist another way to to maybe look at medical affairs is um around data right so to, to get a product on the market, to get it through the regulatory authorities, there's very clear expectations of studies, which is a very specific group of patients, right? The entry criteria for, for studies is very specific and sort of not necessarily real-world patients. It's not necessarily looking at, at patients holistically, and that's the, 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 the current regulatory process. So there's a need to to understand what data gaps may exist, which is where medical affairs comes in to start building the scientific knowledge that would help the, the eventual commercialization of the product, but also inform healthcare professionals and patients, right? So we need to understand some of those data gaps we need to generate the evidence and the and the data around that and more and more we know this is about real world evidence but also data that would help our commercial colleagues to get reimbursement so that's the access part that medical affairs plays a big role 
And then the third data element really is the communication, right? So if we have the data, we need to do something with it. We need to share it. We need to communicate it. We need to to educate uh, about that so that we have that holistic picture or, you know, I, I like to refer to the body of evidence. Uh, and that's an ongoing task. Mm. So medical affairs as a strategic pillar as I've said, it's really about data, data gaps and identifying those data generation and then data communication. Okay, no, that's fantastic. Very clear. Thank you. And I, again, I think for people that don't come from the industry, that will um, be very informative in itself because I don't think many people understand how these organizations are actually set up. So, And it's it's interesting to me because I know when we met, it was in connection with your work with the Medical Affairs Professional Society. So, And, and I just, it's interesting that, it's almost a profession within the profession, if you like, insofar as people identify themselves as being part of medical affairs. It seems to be quite a, yeah, uh, something with its own identity, I guess. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think, you know, when, when uh, MAP started in, in 2016 as a, as a non-profit in the US, they, they filled the gap in the sense of really starting to create this community of medical affairs professionals, because there are many, many, many of my colleagues who want to only do medical affairs and not anything else. And even if, like myself, there's an opportunity to go into to commercial, you know, they want to come back like I wanted, uh, back to, to medical affairs. And within medical affairs, just to be clear, there's many different aspects or, you know, I don't really like sub-functions, but different activities that, that is necessary, right, which I haven't referred to yet around for example, medical information departments that give, you know, respond to to inquiries from from healthcare professionals as well as from from patients. There's a specific bit around maybe analytics. There's another group maybe focusing on safety. So there's a broad range of activities within medical affairs, much more than just the the data reference mm-hmm. that I made earlier, uh, which is why there's so many people actually in in medical affairs who get satisfied to rotate maybe within medical affairs. Uh, And that includes, as I've said, also maybe people who's focusing more on on studies, study execution, clinical trials, and then of course the the so-called field-based or external facing part of of medical affairs, which uh, is commonly referred to as the medical science liaisons. Uh, And that's a big part of communication. Uh, but it's also a big part of getting those insights from healthcare professionals. What are the gaps? What is not clear? What do we need more data on? So it, it really is a, a, a broad range of activities and very clearly, a I think, a need to to build that community of, of professionals. Yeah, no, thank you. That's right. And, you know, you can see certainly from that explanation why it plays such a vital role in going back to the whole theme of this podcast is how it plays a massive role in the not only the execution of the science but also actually delivering the patient experience at the end of the day because it uh, it, it sets the scene for a lot of that so why don't we use that as an opportunity to to dive into some of that and you know whenever we talk to somebody from the pharma industry both on this show and in the work that we do you know one of the, the normal places we start is to do with changing consumer expectations on life sciences and the whole sort of the rise of the customer as a theme having a massive impact on the industry. I mean, perhaps we can just start off by saying, I mean, who who do you think the customer is from your perspective? Because I know that industry-wise, 
there's certainly been a tendency when you have that conversation, sometimes it's the healthcare professional, sometimes it's the patient, sometimes it might be other stakeholders. What's your perspective if I said to you, who do you think the customer is of life sciences? So, so that conversation, Neil, is, uh, well, probably older than 28 years. It's <laughs> probably a podcast in itself as well. But uh, yeah. yeah, indeed. Uh, having said that, I think when I started in, in the early 90s, I think it was just, you know, very straightforward customers, the healthcare professional. I think that's changed over time, though, for, for a variety of, uh, of reasons. So there's it really depends on, on one's perspective, right? So the end user of medication is, of course, the patient. So one can easily argue that, therefore, the patient is the customer. Having said that, you know, we are talking about prescription medicines, or at least in the, in the beginning, rather than consumer health. And therefore, the healthcare professional needs to write the prescription, and therefore, one can argue that that is the customer. I think sometimes we we get ourselves in a bit of a knot actually to to argue who actually is the customer. What has changed over time is the the number of different stakeholders we have, right? And that might be another way to look at this. What do I mean? So Way back, and it's still true in many countries, right? So the cost of medicines is a, is an out-of-pocket expense for for patients, right? So it was really between the the the, the doctor, uh, in some case nurse practitioners, and the patient. However, there are also many countries, as you know, where there's a very, I suppose, developed, advanced way of assessing new medicines, right, whether it's health technology assessment or just simply reimbursement and access based on on cost, right? So so clearly, the so-called payers uh, have become a really important stakeholder. Equally, the regulator is an important stakeholder. Patient advocacy groups and patient organizations are important stakeholders. Academia are important stakeholders. And then we often forget about the media, right? So I'm talking about scientific media primarily, but not not only. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a lot of things, you know, when when you start looking at at high performing teams and and team coaching, for example, there's some work done on, you know, stakeholder engagement, stakeholder communication, and strategically thinking about stakeholders of the future who you may not have thought about before or who's starting to come into the fold. You know, uh, Amazon, for example, Google, for example, the whole notion of big data and, and where it comes from. So so it's, I think, a little bit hard to just say this is the one customer. I think there are many and it depends really on the life cycle of the the medicine as well, uh, that sort of determines maybe a more important stakeholder for the moment. And then another way, of course, is to say, well, maybe all of these stakeholders are customers at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that great answer. And I I, that certainly chimes with me. I mean, when we're doing work with organizations who are thinking about patient pathways and journey mapping and things like that, to do it well, you, you have to have either representatives who know all of those stakeholders really well or indeed the stakeholders themselves in the room to to get a, a holistic view of of what it is actually like now let alone trying to innovate for the future so um, i think that's that's really clear and makes a lot of sense to me so if we, if we dig a bit deeper then i mean you know i made a, a fairly 
glib comment there, you know, ch- changing expectations of patients and HCPs. I mean, it's it's an easy word to say, and obviously it's got huge complexity in terms of what that actually means in practice. But I guess where I'm coming from, and it's particularly relevant to medical affairs, is the, I guess, driven by the empowerment of the amount of information that's available, for example. So, um, you know, you, you mentioned Google. You Quite often the patient will go to Google before they'll go to their GP. You know, they'll actually go online and start looking at symptoms. They might be looking at potential remedies or drugs or something for them. And I, I guess it would be fair to say if you take the end patient, they read more, they know more, they've got access to a lot more information about health. Uh, they can get other people's opinions. They can go on forums. There's so many different ways outside of the doctor's room that they can get something that they would have only previously got from the doctor. So a very, very different context in which we're operating now, I guess. And that poses a couple of questions for me, really. I mean, how well equipped is life sciences and, you know, let's say, for example, even your own company to actually cater for those changing needs going forward, do you think? Yeah, that's a really interesting topic, uh, Neil, the the informed patient, right? So as as you say, it's very different today than what it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago, because of the access to, to information. Sadly, some misinformation as well. So I think it's uh, it's important to to first of all just emphasize that from at least from my perspective, the relationship between a healthcare professional and the patient really is sacrosanct, right? And the, the industry should respect that, right? We, we, we should know the boundaries. Mm. Having said that, I think we can indeed play a role on both sides in the sense that making sure or helping to, to get the right information to patients, right? And there's a number of different channels uh, to do that. And of course, as as you know, we are also a highly regulated industry, so we need to to understand the boundaries in which we can do that. But there is also an opportunity around, you know, educating healthcare professionals and sharing information that that we may have from patients and patient organisations that healthcare professionals don't necessarily know because of a variety of reasons, including. Yeah time, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a almost a liaison type of role and connecting the dots between patient and and healthcare professional in a, in a variety of, of different ways, as long as we do it in, in an appropriate way. We mm. can maybe we get to, you know, what is the appropriate way if we have time, because there's a there's a whole broad conversation really about i suppose conservatism risk risk aversion etc etc so uh Mm. that's an interesting topic in itself yeah okay well we could dig into a bit of that i mean you you made a very clear statement there which is the relationship between the patient and the healthcare professional is sacrosanct i mean regardless of that do you see the relationship changing and shifting at all i mean it, it, it was a very how can i put it almost parent child type relationship certainly historically i mean would you say that that has been preserved or, or is it changing? I do think it's changing, absolutely. And it will be different for different people, right? I, I don't know if it's necessarily generational as well, mm. but I know that, you know, there are healthcare professionals that don't particularly like the patient to come in with a lot of information, especially if it's misinformation. 
and some may feel almost disempowered and, you know, not be sort of uh, in charge anymore. And then there's others who sort of, hey, this is great. You need to take ownership for yourself as well. So let's have this conversation. I think one of the challenges, Neil, is around the time available for a consultation, right? Because if you get into a discussion and a dialogue, what do you know, what don't you know, maybe sorting out any possible misinformation, it takes time. And in many, many, many healthcare systems, that time is just not available. And I think Mm. that is, is a challenge and maybe also an opportunity where you know, again, within the right boundaries, the the industry can play a role through patient organizations to help with the right information. But yeah, I I do think it is changing, definitely. Okay, well, let's, again, let's dig into some of those those areas where it might be appropriate to, um, for life sciences to play a role. So, I mean, it's in common with other industry sectors, most industry sectors that we work in, definitely organizations are having to adapt the way in which they go about designing their propositions their products and very much front and center of that is customer experience now and i and i know that's the case in life sciences because of the work that we do so and i guess when you've got these more informed patients and you know hopefully healthcare professionals keeping up with the science the changes and and, and you empowering them as well i mean how, how do you involve and collaborate with I guess patients, but I guess let's bring HCPs into this as well. I mean, how do you, if you wouldn't mind sort of bringing it to life for us, involve them in the process of development? Not just, I'm not talking about R&D, but I'm talking about when you are creating new patient pathways and you're thinking about the holistic support that you might give both to the HCPs and the patients through things like patient support programs. I mean, how, how do you guys go about doing that? Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Neil. And I really appreciate you using the term of of patient involvement, right? Because I think that's really important. I also use the term patient partnership, right? So the best way to to understand patient needs, of course, is to ask them, uh, and that's something that in the past had not really happened. Again, for a variety of reasons. The the key one being it was sort of a no-no for industry to connect with patient and patient groups. And of course, way back when we didn't really have patient groups, and then there was a time when industry created patient groups and all sorts of shenanigans happened at the time, you know, hence some of the appropriate regulations that exist uh, that we do it in the right way. So the notion of patient advisory groups is becoming more and more common in industry where you know, uh, you you get a group of patients or patient organizations in a room and you start asking questions. You literally get advice. And that might start very early on in the continuum of medicine's development, right? So the one part is, is as early as what is the unmet need? What is yep. not working for you with your chronic disease? What would you like more of? And understanding, you know, is there a way that within discovery and development, one can start really responding to those unmet medical needs. Mm. Similarly, for for later stage development, you know, because the the regulatory need to get marketing authorization is is very specific, and dare I say somewhat archaic, right? Some of the rules that are followed by regulators actually date from the late 1890s (laughs) without any change, right? Which is somewhat scary uh, Mm. when it comes to differentiation from 
from placebo or the so-called sugar pill, because that, you know, was for many, many, many years, the mainstay is your medicine better than not taking anything at all. Now, again, in real life, the question is, is your medicine better than maybe another medicine that already exists? And why? And is it just a little bit? Or is it actually making a, a huge difference because it's responding, if you want, to an unmet medical need? And then equally, as life continues or the continuum goes on, there's a question of, okay, so what now if you, if you have high blood pressure, but you also get bronchitis? You know, what, what happens then? And that gets us into the, the so-called real-world evidence or, or real-world data. And, and again, patients, you know, are human beings that I believe we need to approach from a holistic perspective, right? I don't think pharma should have a mindset of treating disease, but rather helping patients with a specific disease, who's living with that disease, and like anybody else, get you know other things happening to them, right? And to really understand the patient experience, which is of course very individual, one needs to sit down and have that discussion, ask the questions. And again, we should be doing that. Similarly, there's an opportunity to talk to to healthcare professionals. And just to be clear, you know, that includes nurses as well as maybe pharmacists and prescribing physicians or treating clinicians. You know, what, what from their perspective is important? And then, again, bring that together as, as much as we can. Just to share a very quick example Many years ago, I was visiting uh, um, South America and had the opportunity to go to a, a COPD clinic, right? So chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, emphysema. And from a regulatory perspective, it's important to show new medication, the impact on lung function, and it becomes very technical. And what do you measure when you exhale and, you know, very quickly in the first mm-hmm. second, et cetera, et cetera. And then the regulators are happy that this is uh, this is different and better, and you get an authorization. The patient is saying, "Will I be able to walk further than what I was before?" And then very often at that point we didn't know because we didn't measure it. And this is yep. the other important bit around getting the data because it is you know we are a science-driven yep. industry, so we need to be able to give the data. But if we don't know what question to ask, we're not going to have the answers ready. And the only people who can really help us with that are the patients and and understanding their own experience. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And again, you know, massive chimes here with me with with just about every sector we work in, which is a world where we're not just relying on old-fashioned research to go and ask those questions, but we're actually having a dialogue, sometimes in quite a creative way with patients or indeed, let's just call them customers for a moment. Because the language is really important, right? You know, your, your point there about walking, they're not thinking of it from a clinical perspective, they're thinking of it from a life perspective and how it's going to uh, make their life better. I, I mean, just within that, do you use journey mapping and all the sort of tools that any customer experience professional would use in in, in your work? And, and maybe double barrel question, really. So I talked about journey mapping there, but in things like the development of patient support programs and things that really kind of wrap around the medicine or the therapy you're talking about, you know, what sort of tools and techniques do you use to try and elicit clarity, if you like, in terms of what that unmet need might be? 
Yeah, absolutely. We do journey mapping, definitely, because as uh, as you very well know, Neil, that's a really important part of strategy, right? So so yeah. where to, to focus on, so understanding what patients go through. And again, I want to emphasize, it's sadly very different in different countries sometimes, and even within a country, it's very different. So it does become an important part of, of what we do to understand the so-called patient journey or, or patient odyssey. And there's different parts to that, right? So there's the initial diagnosis, but it's also after diagnosis and, and treatment and, you know, what the journeys that the, that they take after that. So, so that becomes uh, a really important part of, uh, of what we need to do. Now, the interesting thing about patient support programs, again, that's an umbrella term that can mean very different things to different people, right? So there's a there's almost an access commercial support, which is around, you know, for chronic diseases, you know, giving additional discounts, for example, especially if it's out-of-pocket markets, you know, how do you play a role to support the patient to continue with, uh, with their medicines? There's another part, which is around compliance or adherence. In other words, how do we help the patient to continue taking the chronic medicine so that the quality of life is good while they live with a chronic disease, especially some of the diseases that in time don't have so many symptoms maybe where people think, well, I'm okay. I don't have to continue because I don't have any symptoms, which uh, of course might uh, not be appropriate in the long run. And then there's also, you know, other patient support programs around, for example, medicines that have to be injected, right? Is there a possibility for for home service, home injection, you know, through nurse organizations? And again, it's very easy for industry to say, well, uh, the patients need this and therefore we're going to create this program. Mm. And then sometimes there's the program just doesn't take off because guess what? It's not actually what the patients wanted, right? Mm. And a really good example these days is around digital and apps, right? Mm. There was a time when people were jumping on the bandwagon and here's an app, you know, this is going to make a difference. Um, but if if this is a, a disease of the elderly who are not familiar with apps and, you know, interesting watches and things that they wear, the so-called wearables, then that falls flat, right? Yeah. Because that's not what they want. It's not what they need. So so again, I think when it comes to patient support programs to really be effective or to have an effective program, let's ask the patients, you know, what what is going to make a difference? Understanding that there might be a normal distribution where, you know, 70, 80% of patients may find value in something, but there will always be people on the extremes that don't like it for for whatever reason but it has to be a partnership and again back to your right in the beginning when you spoke about involved patients we need to involve patients to understand what will add value to them yeah that i think is the the, the key focus rather than being grand and fantastic and creative and coming up with all sorts of uh, ideas without testing them no and is there any constraint? I mean, you, you mentioned the regulation there, and I was staggering. I'd never really thought about it in the way you just described it. You know, it's something dating back to the 1890s in a world of digital and, and biologics and all sorts of uh, new science. It, it feels very inappropriate. But I mean, are, are there any constraints in terms of patient involvement as a result of regulation that kind of 
almost have an unintended consequence of preventing you from finding out what it is that the patient needs when you're developing a new drug. Let's say you're in stage three trials and you're trying to develop a, a patient support program to wrap around it. Are there constraints there? Actually, these days, no. I don't believe there are constraints as long as you do it in the right way, right? Mm -hmm. So as long as it's transparent, it's contractual, and it's really about getting advice and insights rather than sort of some hidden form of, of promotion or or actually making promises about the next best thing coming along, you know, when you don't have the data. So, mm. so no, I don't really think there, there are constraints. It's possible to, to do it. Um, what is great is that the, the regulators and the payers have started changing as well in that they are listening more and more to the patient voice, right? We see this in scientific publications as well, where you these days have to declare whether you've actually had a patient or patient representative look at that, how were patients involved? So, so it is fortunately changing and, and I think a more general acceptance that, that the patient voice is really important because at the end of the day, they are the people who's going to take the medicine. Yeah, absolutely. And great to hear you say it. And let's hope that continues in the right way. Because I know that um, I, I know it's a concern of some that sometimes they can't necessarily go as far as they want to in terms of either designing solutions or indeed sort of digging into perhaps some of the long studies that are needed to to really, you know, sort of find out what's needed. So hopefully the, the evolution will continue there. I mean, I know in your company, um, you have a portfolio and, and some of those are, are rare disease drugs. I mean, everything we've just talked about, presumably in the rare disease area, that, that becomes even more important because you've got patients who might have a real genuine scarcity of information available. So talked about the patient going to Google. If it's something that's very rare without huge amounts of published information, it's actually quite hard to find information about this and about what goes on because there are so few patients who, who suffer from it. I mean, how, do, how does it all play out in a rare disease area? Yeah, really good question. And that's true, right? So this is my first, I suppose, really close hands-on experience with rare diseases. And indeed, it is different for all the reasons that, uh, that you've just mentioned, which does make the, the, the partnership uh, with patient organizations even more important because, you know, the support for organizations or even having a patient organization focusing on a specific disease, if it's rare, is very difficult, right? It's different for for asthma or diabetes or, or even Parkinson's disease, which is, uh, you know, hardly a rare disease. So, so the, the partnership, the involvement becomes much more important. And therefore, also, the willingness of, of industry to to push the boundaries maybe a little bit more as it relates to to different regulations uh, that we have. You you know that there's a number of industry codes, and in general, people view them quite conservatively. Right? We are our own worst enemy sometimes. The 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 industry guidelines is there to to protect the industry, but also to protect patients. So again, it's very easy to say, oh, no, you know, we can't do that. But are you sure? Are you sure you there isn't a way to do that, right? Mm -hmm. So so we do need to change our mindset somewhat, I think, uh, in general, but very specifically for rare diseases, 
especially when you might be the only product on the market, right? That becomes right. even a little bit more complex then because yeah. now, by definition, when you talk to somebody, you're talking about your product in an indirect way because mm -hmm. there is nothing else available. And the industry guidelines was never put together at least at a principal level to prevent stuff, right? It was just to do it in the right way. But but it is a little bit, I think it needs a little bit more courage when, when you definitely have the only product on the market, how to do that. And again, I think the, the secret to that success is around clarity of intent right. and transparency of what you're doing and why you're doing it. So a little bit more problematic, yes, for rare diseases. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. I mean, it, certainly in the work that we've done in this area, it's the sort of realization that quite often when you're running a clinical trial to try and get a robust set of data, quite often a substantial proportion of the patients that you will end up treating will actually be part of that clinical trial because there are so few of them, you know, literally sometimes tens or hundreds of people and, and you've got to go through a, a trial with a reasonable number to actually do that so um, all of that again sort of chimes not just from a designing the experience perspective but actually in in the trialing the drug and then sort of thinking about how in between the launch of the drug and uh, sort of finishing your your trialing is sort of how do you continue to support people who might have become a little bit dependent perhaps on you as an organization for that information and for the fact that they feel like they're actually getting support and, and something that's going to change their life. So, Yeah, indeed, indeed. And I, I think the other thing that's maybe just worth mentioning is, and more and more a focus by many companies around, I suppose, almost, you know, you've heard the term of patient focus, patient centric, patient centricity. But I think there's more and more a move around actually being family-centric, right? Because right. let's not forget the impact of chronic diseases on family, friends, carers, right? So so that, I think, is one of the great opportunities if we really want to add value and make a difference as an industry to understand how can we not be a voice of the patient only, but also the voice of, of carers and, and family members. Mm. Yeah. And, and just sort of wrapping up the rare disease piece, I mean, I'm presuming, and we talked there a lot about the patient, the family, presumably you guys play a substantial role in the rare disease area in terms of developing HCP knowledge and keeping them up to date and up to speed on not just the, the scientific elements of the disease and the treatments, but also the patient need within that area. Would that also be fair? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's a, there's a clear need. Again, different in different countries, you know. So in some countries, there's specialized units where, of course, there's a, you know, very, very high level of knowledge in, in any case, because it's people who may be focusing on some of these rare diseases. And it makes up, uh, you know, a large proportion of their practice and people refer that. In other countries, you don't necessarily have those specialized units, right? So it becomes part of maybe, let's say, a more general physician's patient base, if you want to call that. So there's definitely a role that we can play to make sure that people understand the disease. I personally think there's an opportunity actually earlier on as well, right? So, so industry focuses very easily on 
here's the disease, this is the mechanism of the disease or the so-called pathophysiology, and here's some treatment options, right? And there may be very few, there may only be one, right? However, there's a bit around, especially rare diseases, very often takes a long time to actually get diagnosed correctly. So the opportunity, I think, is a role that we can play to educate what might be the differential diagnosis or what might be the presenting symptoms and signs that initially could be a variety of diseases. And then yeah. how do you determine what is the actual diagnosis? Because that, of course, is important so that you can then decide on uh, on the appropriate treatment. So there's an opportunity, I think, for industry to play with healthcare professionals, which is around, you know, the so-called increasing the level of suspicion yeah. about a specific yeah. disease, right? Because many diseases can present with similar symptoms and then you need yeah. to start putting things together. And that's another important part around the time of consultation that I referred to before. You have to, as a clinician, you have to have the time to ask the questions, to understand how long, what, how, so that you can then start building and you know maybe a smaller list of possible diagnoses, and and I think industry can play a part in that as well. Yeah, thank you. Really clear. Okay, so we've talked about. I mean, obviously, some seismic changes in the industry, driven by consumerism in its broadest sense, driven by the internet regulation, all sorts of things happening, and and you guys having to respond to it, and and indeed, you know, pretty much the reason why we formed our, our life sciences practice within Penn is to is to help with these big challenges and they fascinate us on a day-to-day basis i mean sort of turning to the internal view for a minute given all of that change and given all those forces at play i mean how how is that impacting how you set up an organization like yourselves not i mean we can talk about the medical side of it or indeed the the other pillars that you mentioned there but i mean how, how is it changing so that not only you address those needs but perhaps even are able to show the value of things like the medical activities within pharma companies? And what kind of changes are you experiencing? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, right? So there's the sort of, I suppose, natural evolvement of activities and tactics. And then there's uh, maybe COVID, right, which expedited some of these. So, So a colleague of mine, you know, often talks about doing things differently, but also doing different things. And that's maybe the more important part. It's very easy to remain traditional within pharma industry of, you know, how you bring a product to market. Uh, But if the environment changes, then, well, maybe you need to change how you do that as well. So first of all, doing different things. So, So we have become much more accustomed, I suppose, to a virtual environment. There's huge advantages in that. I think, uh, you know, the the era of of webinars and especially on demand information gives access to many, many, many more healthcare professionals than what it was in the past when it was very much dependent on face-to-face meetings, whether it was one-to-one or with uh, with a group. Yeah. But I think when it comes to doing different things, you know, there's a discussion to be had around rather than having just a one-way lecture, I'll tell you what you need to know, is to make sure that you actually have an opportunity for a discussion forum, right? And this can be done virtually as well. 
to to really allow people to share clinical experiences so that you don't only have the science but also the clinical implication because improving patient outcomes and and quality of life and how they live with the disease at the end of the day is really what patient focus is about or patient centricity so i think the the way that we communicate information that we educate also has to change and uh, and stay fresh and and modern right Mm. part of that includes for example you know an, an opportunity to to work with maybe professional organizations around testing knowledge levels before and after a session, right? So so that happens in many cases already, and it has been for a number of years, but not in all cases, right? So when it comes to really adult learning and making a difference, more and more professional bodies expect the so-called, you know, continued professional development or continued medical education. And if you do that the right way, if it's at the right level, fair, balanced, objective, based on science, working with, as I say, professional societies, there's an opportunity to really have good quality information shared in different ways. It is an interesting topic as well, in the sense that there are a number of people who believe that the industry, by definition, should play no role in education whatsoever, because by default, it's biased, right? Right. And I understand that perspective. My perspective is completely different because I also know that, you know, the, especially in rare diseases, people are not focusing on that from a continued professional development perspective. And therefore, if we do this right as an industry in collaboration with academia, with professional societies, it is not biased, right? And, and I think there's a lot of examples of that and opportunities to make sure that it is uh, is indeed a balanced conversation. And, and does that call for having quite different skill sets within the business? I mean, it, it sounds to me, uh, you know, you talked about some of the acceleration. I mean, are you bringing in people with new skills to do that and needing a broader range of skills to be understanding of patients, the communication skills that are required, digital skills? I mean, is this, is this a, a breeding ground for new, wonderful, interesting roles within um, within the industry? Indeed, yes, I think it is. In many cases, especially smaller companies, you know, a lot of this is outsourced to agencies. So, so yes, we do need new skills. And this is not because I'm not saying we can get rid of the old skills, right? It's building on that. So the ability to really facilitate or moderate a conversation is very important. So, Traditionally, this was sort of, you know, get a key opinion leader to do that, to chair a meeting, to moderate that meeting. And in many cases, they've done a brilliant job in doing that. But there are also cases where, you know, that's not necessarily their skill set. Their skill set is is the knowledge and the science. So the ability to to moderate a conversation and a dialogue with uh, with a number of different participants, I think, is particularly important and we see more and more of that. We haven't spoken that much about digital, but I think that's another example of of the skill set that is needed uh, specifically in medical to build in because the the way that you communicate digitally, uh, as you know, is very different around, you know, bite-sized messages or, you know, a podcast is very different to watching a webinar maybe or just listening to it um, and how to do that in the most 
effective way, indeed, we do need uh, new skills for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let, let, let's just turn to uh, let's touch a, a broader digital subject for a moment, which is really what I'd call the sort of Uberization of customer experience. So just thinking about the disruptive impact of organizations like Uber and, and the way in which that has a big shift in terms of customer expectation across a range of industries. I mean, do you see, I mean, you, you mentioned them earlier a little bit as, as potential stakeholders. Do you see the massive tech giants such as Google and Amazon, et cetera, and we know that they're they're moving into healthcare in some ways. I mean, how, how do you sort of see that playing out in in terms of the impact that they might have both on the industry, but also on patient experience and, and the role that they might play within things? Yeah, indeed. I think the role will just get bigger and bigger. What exactly it is and what it looks like, I yeah. actually don't know, to be no. honest. But for sure, you know, the, the there's no doubt that it's going to have an impact not only on patients, but also on healthcare professionals. A number of years now ago, a colleague of mine in the U.S. was visiting a recently qualified cardiologist, right? A relatively young guy. He does his practice with Google Glasses, right? And he just gets information there just either as a refresher or to check up on something. Now, you know, that might be one extreme, but but the point is the, these things is going to have a, a massive impact in, in future as well. And uh, if, if you sort of keep an eye on the type of people that Google and Amazon and others sort of recruit and how many actually comes from pharma, mm. it's a really interesting thing. There's the additional bit around, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, analysis of big data, collecting data. And I'm not, I don't want to go the privacy route and all of some of the challenges around that when it comes to data. But for sure, there will be a, a, a mega impact. Uh, and it's not, of course, they're keeping it close to their chest. So it's not quite clear what exactly it's going to look like. I suspect it might hit us sooner than what we think. I don't think this is decades away at all. No. I think it's, uh, it's relatively close, yeah. No, I, I'd agree. And and. I'm exactly the same place as you, which is, I think, their ability to access and harvest data. And particularly if they start getting involved in some way in diagnostics or indeed just looking at experiential behavior of people and what they're doing and, and you know, pulling all of that together. And then, as you say, their ability to actually analyze that in a certain way, given the importance of data within the industry, it does feel like a natural place for them. So uh, let, let's see. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always surprised. I've got an app on my phone about you know news in in south africa and whether i sit here or in south africa or recently for a weekend in gibraltar the ads on that change right so this is an afrikaans app the ads are all in english but it's gibraltar focused in gibraltar it's uk focused here so my point is that you know I think we underestimate what Apple, for example, knows about us. And as you say, if they start looking at all of that data, we know this in, in consumerism as well, you know, and ads and Facebook and all of those things. But it's going to go into the health arena as well. I have absolutely no doubt about that, mm, mm. which is a bit scary, to be honest. Yeah, could be, could be. I, I've heard it. A wonderful term that I think it was Gartner used, which was um, around data bubbles. The idea that as we're doing things, we sort of 
almost give off an exhaust of data. And people think that those bubbles evaporate, but they don't. They're stored forever. So that exhaust is captured and then used. And, and as you say, the goodness knows how much uh, information can be uh, pulled together and pieced together to actually create a picture of somebody's life and then potentially the impact on their health and all the diagnostics and things that you could do off the back of that, which, uh, yeah, very interesting stuff. I was really surprised one day when I got in the car, you know, when we still worked in the office, I got in the car in the late afternoon and Google Maps popped up and said, it's going to take you 35 minutes to drive home. And I'm, mm. I remember the first time that came out as well. Yeah. Where do you, how do you know I'm going there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Really weird. Cause it looks at the pattern. Amazing. Okay, great. Just one other thing I'd just like to just pick up with you really. I mean, it's such a massive issue for the organ. I mean, we've obviously talked a load about the changes. We've talked about the importance of understanding customer need and, and, the point about communication you made where that sort of comes together is about reputation for me, which is about how consumers particularly, and you talked about the press earlier as well, see the industry, see life sciences companies. And, you know, as we know, the pharma sector does consistently score low on reputation benchmarks against other industries. I mean, that must be of a concern to you as a, as a senior practitioner within the industry. I mean, what do you think it's going to take to turn this around? I mean, certainly given what we thought might have been a massive opportunity and hopefully still will be an opportunity in terms of the pandemic and the amazing work that's been done to, to obviously get the vaccine program delivered. But it's come with some difficult moments, particularly for AstraZeneca. I mean, what, what's your view on, on that? And how do, we, how do we turn the reputation of the industry into one that we can perhaps feel a bit more comfortable with? Yeah, really great question, Neil. So indeed, I do think that vaccines development over the last 15 months has really helped to put industry maybe at a different level than uh, than before. So I, I find this a really interesting topic. And again, it's not a new topic, right? So in the 90s, when, uh, or maybe before then, when industry, let's face it, did have some weird and wonderful practices, right, which is uh, not acceptable and is most definitely frowned upon today, which is why uh, some of these have stopped. That, I think, is important. There's a, there was a notion at the time around we can't really tell people of all the great stuff because it will be perceived that we are defensive and we want to divert their attention from maybe the bad things that we're doing. I personally think, uh, again, you know, industry bodies like, you know, the European Federation, pharmaceutical industries or the British, or, you know, there's many different ones in different countries. I do think there's an opportunity actually to go much more public about the good stuff that we're doing as an industry, right? There, there was a brilliant series on, on BBC about extra life, Right, and the impact of vaccination medicines on prolonging life, right? And it came from the industry primarily, right? Yes, collaboration with academia as well. But there's so many brilliant examples of what industry has done that I don't think we utilize to help with this perception that that we some of the baddies, right? Like, you know oil companies or tobacco companies or banking there, I say. And and that that's really unfortunate because, you know, if again, there's so many examples, right? The invention of insulin, for example, in the 1920s, right? Or antibiotics and sort of 
for pleas around there. You know, HIV AIDS, this was a death sentence in the 80s. Now, it is a chronic disease that people live with, right? The, the interesting scientific question becomes, well, what, what about the elderly who's living with HIV? That wasn't even a question on mm. anybody's mind in the 80s, right? Mm. That development comes from, from industry. So there's so many great examples where I believe we've made a big difference to, to quality of life, longevity, that I think it's a missed opportunity for us to, in an appropriate way, talk about that, right? Mm. Um, we're not the baddies. We're not the baddies. Yeah. No, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I think it, it falls upon us as an organization as well to, to work with people like yourselves to do that because we feel very passionately about the subject. And uh, I, I remember I asked a very similar question to Dirk Otto on a previous episode from Bowringer and, and <laughs> Dirk was similarly exercised and, and just said it hurts. You know, it, when, when um, we get up in the morning and we're obsessed with life and, and actually making people's lives better that's what drives pretty much everybody that works within the organization and and um sometimes it really hurts when you hear people talking about that so uh, i can understand it yeah i feel it (laughs) okay fantastic thank you so much i mean that's been really interesting and i i guess my summary from all of that is you know lots of change lots of forces driven by consumerism and driven by new technologies new access to information and the we talked a bit there about the importance of the ability to harvest and understand data going forward i think is going to be a massive part of of this industry and and will drive customer experience as well both in terms of what people see and hear through the communication but also in terms of what it actually uh, allows organizations to develop so thank you for that as a, as a bit of a roundup at the end if i may Danny, just just talking generally, and I ask all my guests this. I mean, what do you think being truly customer-centric actually means? Yeah, you know, I think it's when it's when something happens that surprises you, makes life better, and you didn't ask for it, right? So, so let me give you an example. So some a few months ago. I had to make a, a, a call to South Africa. I only had my mobile phone with me. Uh, and this couldn't be a WhatsApp call for free. So it wasn't a particularly long call, maybe 10 minutes or so. Check the count afterwards, 27 quid, right? <laughs> so I thought, okay, that's a bit steep. A few days later, the, well, service provider, let's not go names, the service provider contacted me and said, we've noticed that you've made a call did you know that we have an offer available that for three pounds a month you get a hundred minutes to any overseas destination and i was wow yeah i didn't know that you've done this proactively made a difference and suddenly there's well okay if the need arises to make a call that's okay because it's not going to cost me 27 quid again so mm. so that to me was a really nice example of a good customer experience when somebody yeah. you know comes to you unexpectedly makes a difference to your life that's nice 
Yeah, uh, using the customer exhaust as we talked about there. So there's a little data bubble. They've picked up on it. They've obviously had complaints previously, but they've pulled all that together and they've created a proactive offer. So that is a fantastic example of what customer-centric behavior is. So it's great. What about a terrible experience? I mean, uh, again, no names, I'm sure, but um, can you think of one that kind of epitomizes how not to do it? Yeah, I, I suppose it's it's around when it feels as if somebody actually just doesn't care. That to me is always a, a you know not a good customer experience, right? So I suppose one of the more recent examples, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to to be um, in a plane during during the pandemic, and there was uh, you know I suppose the the attitude of the people. Yes, it's a difficult time, but you know it was rather than the usual meal service, it was in, in boxes. It was almost just thrown down and walk on right it was just not caring or you know if you if you've been a customer with somebody for for a really long time and you 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 then have a conversation say you know actually i've got some other stuff to do could you come along and they say well you know yes there was somebody who had to to wait six months uh, for us because we're so busy and if they're not willing to wait they can just you know, go away with a capital F. And this was the owner of the company, which just made me think, wow, you know, there's a way to frame this. You should be grateful that you're so busy with so many customers. But, you know, to to have an attitude of, actually, I just don't care anymore because I've got enough customers, it's going to come back and bite you. So mm-hmm. so that, for me, is sort of not a good customer experience when, when it feels as if people actually just don't care. No. No, okay, and and it's interesting you mentioned sort of COVID and the flying experience. I mean, uh, I think there's a a growing movement of customers of kind of worn thin of the excuse that says the reason why we've got a long queue on our telephone line is because of COVID or or what have you. Know we're a long we're a long way in now, and um, there's been a lot written about it recently on LinkedIn where people are getting very exercised about that. So indeed, indeed. Yeah, there is a final question I was going to ask you, which I probably didn't tell you I was going to ask you, but I'll, I'll see, see what see what you think of it. What's the one thing that you have learnt in your experience of of business and all the things that you've done over the years that perhaps you couldn't have learnt at business school? Is there any particular learning that? Oh wow, you remind me of a comment that uh, one of the uh, professors in medical school made many, 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 many moons ago, i.e., in the eighties. And the comment was, experience only comes through experience. You cannot learn experience from a book. Yeah. Not possible, right? So, so I think that's, that's what I've learned, you know. So in later life, I d- did an MBA as well. And it was at a time when it was really great because I've actually experienced a number of things that they refer to in the, in the course, which sort of brought it alive and gave me an understanding of, oh, okay, is that why it worked that way? Yeah. So, so the learning for me is 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 exactly that. Is you you have to live life, you have to experience things, you have to interact with uh, with people, you have to learn how to listen and allow for different perspectives. And some of that is in writing in courses, yeah, of course. But if you haven't actually done that, you just mm. wouldn't know. So, so I've changed that that comment about experience only comes through experience. Uh, I've used a number of times actually, and change it to experience is a function of time. Mm. 
Um, so that I think is uh, is something that's not possible to to really grasp just from a book or a lecture. Yeah, no, lovely. That's great. What a great way to end. Danny, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for giving up a, a big chunk of your time. I know you're you're extremely busy. I, I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, you know, it's brought to life again for me within this sector just how much is going on around patient centricity and and organisations really thinking about what they need to do both in terms of the sort of functional things that they do but also thinking a much more broadly about that about how they can reach out to uh, a, a very broad audience and and effectively you know have a big impact on people's lives as a result of really understanding what people need so so thank you for that and um yeah great well look forward to speaking to you again soon thank you so much thank you very much neil i enjoyed the conversation as well you take care thanks a lot thanks very much for listening today If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye.